cheer was for John Vanthoff, the new Democratic Party MPP for the Temascoming Cochrane region of Ontario, and the party's agriculture and rural affairs critic. What was he talking about that would get such applause for more than 300 Ontario farmers? Welcome to another edition of Between the Rows, the weekly podcast brought to you by Glacier Farm Media. I'm Christy Nuds, editor of Farmterio, and I'll be your host this week. John Vanthoff was a speaker at the Ontario Federation of Agriculture's annual meeting in London, Ontario earlier this week. He was talking about Bill 23, the proposed Build More Homes Faster Act. Mr. Vanthoff is critical of this bill, which proposes to allow the construction of one and a half million homes in the province over the next 10 years, using land that is supposed to be protected, including farmland. He told attendees of the annual meeting that farmers should be concerned and that he is proposing his own bill that will require any land purchased in the province to have an agricultural impact assessment. Today we'll talk about how Bill 23 could impact Ontario farmland in the future. Peggy Breckfield, President of the Ontario Federation of Agriculture, also known as the OFA, will tell us what the bill could mean for Ontario agriculture and the success of OFA's homegrown campaign. We have to think long term. Farmers farm not with years in mind, but with generations in mind. And we have to do land use planning with the mind of generations. We'll also hear from Wayne Caldwell, a professor in rural planning and development with the University of Guelph, about what the bill means for long-term planning in the province. Well, I think the first thing is to acknowledge it represents a fundamental shift in the planning system in Ontario. Later in the show, we talk with Naomi Johnson, a senior policy advisor at the Canadian Food Grains Bank, who just returned from the COP27 climate change meeting, and we'll hear from her about what such a large event has to do with her organization. Everyone from environmentalists to fossil fuel industry, um, you have uh, farmers, there's a farmers group there, the farmers constituency that I'm part of from all around the world. But first, here's a word from our sponsor. Save money, make money with AGI Nico dryers. AGI Nico mixed flow screenless dryers provide one to two pounds heavier test weight per bushel and require less maintenance than screen dryers. Stainless steel fuel trains mean no rust or corrosion to worry about. AGI Nico Dryer Manager puts remote management and monitoring in your hands. And with 30% in fuel savings, you'll save on every load. That's money in your pocket. Visit aggrowth.com slash Nico for more info. That's aggrowth.com slash Nico. I'm Christy Nuds, and you're listening to Between the Rows. There's no argument that Ontario, and indeed most of Canada, needs more housing. But Bill 23 has proposed significant land use changes, including the use of lands that have been protected under the province's greenbelt for nearly 20 years. The bill also proposes development on lands without the need for an agricultural impact assessment or consultation with any conservation authority in the province. I talked with Peggy Breckfeld, President of the Ontario Federation of Agriculture, at the Federation's annual meeting earlier this week. Okay, thanks for joining me, Peggy. First of all, can you tell me what's at stake for Ontario agriculture if Bill 23 passes? Part of Bill 23's goal is to take some farmland and portions of the Greenbelts and turn it into uh, development 
and then extend the green belt to a different place. What's interesting is that many people don't realize it doesn't matter what color belt you have on your land, farmland is farmland. And if you take farmland away from this portion, it's gone forever. Once it goes into houses and concrete, it doesn't come back. And for Ontario agriculture, we've been watching 319 acres a day disappear, which works out to about 75 million carrots or 25 million apples or 1.2 bottles of VQA wine if you uh, if you're like to finish your day that way. Um, that's significant. And that just continues. And this will accelerate that in some way. Uh, we actually, as Ontario and as Canada, we're one of seven regions in the world that actually have the opportunity to grow more food or export more food than we import. And so I believe we have a responsibility to feed our local markets, to feed the province, to feed Canada, to feed the world. So given Ontario's ability to feed its own itself in, in the province as well as the rest of Canada. What steps has the OFA taken to try to bring this issue and to bring this forward, the importance of this issue, I should say, to the Minister of Agriculture and the Minister of Municipal Affairs and Housing to really make them understand the full impact of Bill 23? OFA put this as one of their priorities already a year and a half ago at least. And so we've been working and building the conversation not just in agriculture about the importance of farmland, but also with those who live in the cities, live in the rural urban areas. Uh, the conversation needs to be bigger than just farmers. It's about who's gonna feed you and where are we gonna get our food from? Do you wanna get it from China? Uh, or do you wanna get it from a place where you trust the quality and the uh, products that are gonna be grown there? Um, uh, because we have engaged so many other people, the conversation becomes much bigger. And that's important. Farmers are only less than 2% of the population across this country. And so we need to have a bigger voice. It's been wonderful to watch how engaged the general public has been on this. We had a uh, online, we still have an online uh, presence with our homegrown campaign. It's homegrown.on.sorry. It's homegrown.ofa.on.ca. And uh, we have almost 45,000 signatures now. And so it's not just a baby survey. People really do care about this. And we're happy to share that information with governments of all levels. Explain to me a little bit about the homegrown campaign. Now, what spearheaded that? Obviously, you said uh, OFA has been concerned about the loss of farmland prior to the proposed Bill 23. But what really what really spurred the homegrown Ontario campaign? Yeah, one of our researchers actually took some time already a few years ago and took a look between the 2011 and 2016 censuses. At that point, if you look at the census data, we were already losing 175 acres a day. So we patiently waited for the new census data to come out and the number had increased to 319. And again, that's not a baby number, that's a pretty big number and it just compounds every, every single day. So how do you uh, address that? How do you stop that? And it came to us very early that we had to engage more people than just farming. 
just not not just the farm community. We should get out of our echo chamber. Have you noticed a greater uptake from consumers and even perhaps non-conservative MPPs in the interest in the homegrown campaign, given some of the supply chain issues and the importance of food or how important food became during the pandemic? We've seen engagement from all sorts of people, uh, people who are actively involved in the local food movement, people who are concerned about land use. We've seen people engaged because they just really love to eat Ontario food. Um, I I don't think it matters what walk of life you came from. Uh, there are people there that are represented amongst the 40, almost 45,000 people that have signed on. Um, I, I think that media has also taken this up and really finds that number of 319 acres a day being lost as something to really um, think about and to encourage their listeners or their readers to engage in. This is real. Um, around my place, uh, we we lost 45 acres, which isn't a huge block, but uh, somebody took those 45 acres, divided it into three lots, and they will have massive lawns on their big houses. And this year we could use half the land. The houses weren't done yet, but that will change. And that's unfortunate. Uh, that was food production uh, for of some kind. In our case, it was to put to our cows to feed cows. And we, we just know that that's, you can't keep doing that without eventually losing the farms. That was Peggy Breckfeld, president of the Ontario Federation of Agriculture. Loss of farmland is a concern not just in Ontario, but other parts of Canada as well. I asked Professor Wayne Caldwell of the University of Guelph about how Bill 23 is troublesome for land use planning and how it differs from how other provinces tackle this issue. And does he think Bill 23 will meet the housing needs of the province or could it lead to longer term problems? So Wayne, there's been a lot of talk about Bill 23 in Ontario, and there's a lot of pushback from municipalities, agricultural groups, and conservation groups who are calling for a halt of Bill 23. Can you explain for us a little bit why, what are the overarching issues with Bill 23, and why are some of these groups very concerned? Sure. Well, I think the first thing is to acknowledge it represents a fundamental shift in the planning system in Ontario. Um, what we have to, in place today has been an evolution of policy and programs going back many, many years, probably 50 years in total in terms of initiatives on the part of all stripes of government uh, leading to the proposal that we have before us today, which changes that in, in some fairly significant ways. Um, of course, it's all under the intention of trying to create more opportunities for housing. But in that process, I would suggest that there's, there's a number of things that have led people to be, be quite concerned. So, for example, we have conservation authorities in Ontario that have played an important role in, uh, in the way that land is developed and in looking towards environmental issues. And I think there's some significant changes which undermines that. Uh, we have uh, well, the whole planning system for much of the province where the growth areas exist ex occurs within the context of regional governments. And these regional governments were created by the 
uh, John Roberts and Bill Davis governments of the 1960s and 1970s. And one of the main things that they were to do was to look after planning in their jurisdictions because of all of the growth that was going to happen in Ontario. And uh, the planning system we have today is a reflection of those initial decisions, um, making for important uh, uh, positions and statements on the part of the regions in terms of how development will occur, making sure it's coordinated between local municipalities and the like. And that's uh, proposed to be changed in, uh, in some very significant ways. Uh, we have uh, changes which lead to the direct taking of land out of the Green Belt, which was established, uh, well, it must be almost 20 years ago now, uh, specifically with the intention of protecting those lands in perpetuity. Uh, and uh, the current approach will undermine that by taking thousands of acres out of production and allowing it to be converted uh, to residential use. I think there's some fundamental things within that uh, that speak to how we view agriculture within the province of Ontario. And I think that's a fair a beyond the legislation itself in terms of what does that mean in the broader context. And I think those are some of the things that have people quite agitated. Speaking of the green belt, how many acres do you think are at risk right now? And how many of those would be protected lands or agricultural use lands? Yeah, um, well, my understanding is from the numbers I've been told is it's approaching 8,000 acres uh, that's being converted uh, out of uh, 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 out of the Greenbelt protected countryside to be allowed to be used for residential purposes. Um, and it's also worth noting that these processes are occurring uh, in a way that doesn't uh, allow local input in, uh, in the way things would historically occur in terms of the government uh, saying this change will occur. Uh, so we have that area of approximately 8,000 acres. One of my con underlying concerns, though, is it's it's not just that 8,000 acres. That what it, it's what it says now to the future. Is this land truly going to be protected if there's another perceived need on the part of some government into the future? Uh, why wouldn't they look back to this precedent? How do we convey to a local municipality in southern Ontario, southwestern Ontario is an example, it's important to protect farmland when the province has uh, demonstrated their commitment to it through the changes that they've just made within the green belt. And I think those kinds of uh, approaches uh, do raise concerns. Um, I, and I think it's, it's a, a fundamental issue for our current generation and for the next generation as well. So obviously in other areas of Canada, there have been sort of the similar issues. You know, you look at Calgary or Vancouver, other big urban centers that are located around agriculturally sensitive areas. So how have other urban areas or other cities handled this kind of growth and how does it differ from Bill 23 perhaps? Yeah, yeah good question. We have uh, different approaches across the countryside. Of course, in British Columbia, we have the Agricultural Land Reserve, which is a strong uh, provincial initiative. In Quebec, we have legislation, uh, which is also a provincial initiative, a requirement essentially to protect these key farmlands that are identified. Um, we have different approaches across uh, the prairie provinces as well. And I've, for example, uh, studied and looked at approaches in Alberta and in Manitoba as an example. And it's uh, fair to say that uh, there are some differences uh, within Ontario because of that 50 years of tradition of, uh, of putting things into effect. We have in Ontario, for example, you know, going back to the 1950s, there were studies documenting the loss of the tender fruit lands. And out of that uh, flowed the approach of, uh, again, this would go back to uh, conservative governments of the 1960s and 1970s, the food land guidelines and things of that nature that put into effect uh, a provincial interest in protecting agricultural land. 
across the province, I'm sorry, across the country, uh, other provinces have also got uh, policies in place uh, to uh, to try to protect farmland. Although uh, research that has been done will often look to the approaches in British Columbia, Quebec, and Ontario was sort of leading the way. And I would say that uh, what we have in Ontario at the moment, um, prior to Bill 23, was a fairly strong uh, policy position on the part of government and as implemented by municipalities across the uh, across the province to protect agricultural land. And uh, I would think if uh, one's in a, another uh, province, one would want to look at what's happening in BC as an example, or look to the way things are in Ontario at this very moment prior to Bill 23 and what might be the outcome of it. One other uh, point I might make is, uh, you know, what we've uh, attempted to achieve within Ontario over the last uh, number of years since the Green Belt came into effect and uh, and so on, is this notion of you create more efficient and livable communities by increasing density. Uh, sprawl is not the way to do things. It leads to uh, higher costs uh, for communities. Uh, it leads to uh, to concerns in terms of the quality of life that people will inherit as a result of that. And uh, it's fundamentally expensive as well. And I even uh, worry that what we might achieve in Ontario is the opposite of what we're attempting to achieve in terms of creating higher uh, opportunities for housing. We may in fact uh, cripple municipalities in terms of their ability to afford some of the, the development which is being uh, uh, hoped for. And uh, I just hope that uh, that we don't uh, close doors instead of opening doors. That was my conversation with Wayne Caldwell, a professor in rural planning and development with the University of Guelph. I'm Christy Nuds, and you're listening to Between the Rows. One of the biggest challenges facing agriculture right now is climate change. Governments around the world are working towards reducing greenhouse gases, which could affect how farmers grow food in the future. Earlier this month, the United Nations Climate Change Conference, also known as COP27, took place in Egypt. What's it like to be at a large global conference like this? Manitoba Cooperator reporter Gerilyn Witchers wanted to find out. She asked Naomi Johnson, a senior policy advisor at the Canadian Food Grains Bank, what it was like. Johnson attended the conference as an observer. For those people like me who probably will never go to any of these really massive environmental conferences, they're a little bit shrouded in mystery. Can you, can you give me a little bit of a picture uh, what day-to-day -day life at this conference looks like, what you will be doing? Oh, sure. Yeah, and that's fair enough. Um, so it's basically, and it's grown tremendously over the years. Um, this came out... Um, for, this came out of Kyoto Protocol years ago, kind of, to have this UNFCCC, which is the UN Convention on Climate Change mm -hmm. uh, Conference. And it's also it's often called COP, right? C-O-P, um, which is actually just stands for Conference of the Parties. And the parties would be all the countries, right, that are that are part of it. Mm -hmm. um, so COP27 is it's the 27th Conference of the Parties related to the UNFCCC or the UN on climate change. And um, it's really 
um, it's, yeah, it's overwhelming to be honest. Uh, it's uh, typically at a very large venue, um, typically where they have either attached venues or have done pop-up buildings or pathways outside to get to different buildings because you need such a massive space. Um, there are areas where negotiations take place so meeting rooms where you can imagine kind of a big square room with a big square tables and microphones and all the people sitting, the negotiators that come from different countries, typically like for Canada, they're often from Environment Canada, sometimes some of the other departments sitting there to actually negotiate on the different topics of climate change. Um, and of course, there's so many, you know, we think of mitigation, reducing greenhouse gases or adaptation, reducing the impact of climate climate change, right? And so um, lots, it's a very overwhelming space. It takes a few days usually even just to get acquainted of where everything is and dotted between that is little food or coffee bars that you try to find. Um, and then all sorts of people, as you can imagine, right? You've got heads of state, you've got the various ministers, um, and department staff, so the delegations from the countries, uh, but then you have so many different kinds of people from civil society represented, right, um, known as observers, but um, everyone from environmentalists to fossil fuel industry, um, you have uh, farmers, there's a farmers group there, the farmers constituency that I'm part of from all around the world with different agricultural groups and farming groups. Um, and then indigenous groups, of course, and people focused on gender issues and human rights issues and all these different aspects. So it's really, I mean, I think that's one of the cool things about it is you walk in and you can just tell there's so many cultures and so many different kinds of people around you at once. So what exactly does it mean for the Canadian Food Grains Bank, an organization that works to help alleviate world hunger to be at such an event? And for me, the biggest thing we try to advocate is increased adaptation support for small-scale farmers. So again, adaptation being support to deal with the impacts of climate change, right? Um, so there are obviously goals on mitigation to reduce greenhouse gases and goals on adaptation. Um, so we really want to see that countries are living up to their, their pledge and, and doing as much as they can and more. We know that um, adaptation is very underfunded. Um, and so globally and in Canada, from, from Canada as well. And so to really say, okay, we need to do our part there, but then also let's make sure that that money reaches those who need it most. So reaches those in um, you know, least developed countries, those in poverty, and, and those that, for example, are in small scale farmers and uh, you know, really dealing with the impacts of climate change firsthand. Um, and one of the things that was kind of interesting this year is we really heard a lot about food security issues, right? Right from the start, a lot of countries were talking about a food crisis and often a food and energy crisis. But I think with the impacts of COVID-19 and the war in Ukraine and inflation um, on top of climate change impacts, just really struggling to cope with all of those um, particularly vulnerable communities. So we often heard how that impact food security around the world. And it came up in a number of negotiations and a number of talks about food security being a challenge. So it was nice to see 
you know, that get a little bit more focus this year. And so for me, I specifically look at what Canada is doing, right? And, and look at Canada's climate finance, which is the money it gives internationally to help countries deal with climate change, right? It's part of our agreement with the UN that we have to do this. All, de all developed countries sign on to help support other countries deal with climate change. And so really looking at, okay, what is Canada doing and where is their money going and how could they be doing better and trying to push them on that? How is Canada doing? Okay, well... Um, okay, if I could say, I would say we've gotten that's a, I mean, a little bit of a ticklish question for you because you've got to keep your relationships okay with the folks. Who uh, no, it's okay. I mean, okay. I, I openly uh, criticize them and push them as well, right? Okay. So, uh, it's, that's that's my job, and they know it. And I think many of them, you know, many people who are working for global affairs, for example, or Environment Canada, are trying to see these improvements, but it's so challenging right with um canada being so, so supported by a fossil fuel industry and other outcomes or other um, priorities that people are pushing right um and then of course trying to jiggle how much finance canada wants to give and how much they're approved to give so it's a it's a constant challenge i think we've we're doing a lot better. Um, in 2021, we released like kind of a new five-year pledge for what we'll do on climate finance. And there were a lot of improvements in that. They doubled their climate finance for one. So we've seen more quantity. Uh, they said they would focus more on adaptation. They said they would focus more on grants. Um, they would focus on gender aspects. So we're seeing a lot of good promising things, but there's still a lot of challenges in terms of giving how much we should give our fair share of what developed countries committed to. We're still only giving, I think it's 59% now of what, even though we just doubled our finance, it's still less than 60% of what we should be giving as, as what we've all committed to with other developed countries based on our wealth. Um, and we should be giving 50% of our funding to adaptation, right? Half should go to mitigation, half to adaptation. And that's something the Paris Agreement, like the UN Climate Change Paris Agreement says, but we still, we've only committed to give 40% to adaptation. So we have doubled our adaptation. We've actually given, we're giving a lot more money to adaptation, but we're not giving, we're still not committing to giving half of our efforts. Mm -hmm. And then uh, one of the things we also look through is how, is how much is going through grants versus loans, right? Um, you would think that um, developing countries shouldn't have to pay us back for the impacts they're dealing with with climate change, but actually uh, the majority of our climate finance is through loans. So we give funding and say, okay, you have to pay us back, even though you're dealing with the impacts that we were largely responsible for. So that's always something, you know, we try to, again, Canada gives a lot more loans than other countries, so we try to push them on that. So we are seeing progress and we are seeing movement in the right direction, but there's still a lot of challenges and a lot of work we need to do. So they, they negotiated this sort of loss and damage fund pool thing. How will that factor into this or how do you see that factoring into this adaptation and mitigation question for these? Okay, well, that's always been a bit of an issue because so... 
Loss and damage has been about, yeah, it's been about three decades ago that countries started asking for compensation for the losses and damages they're facing due to climate change. And that's where they're saying, you know what, yes, we can adapt um, to some extent, but we're already facing devastating impacts and we can't deal with those right now with the increasing debt and other challenges we're having, right? Um, so, of course, compensation kind of that wording has fallen off the bandwagon. They don't use that, but they um, they they did agree to establish a fund to address it. And this this was really, I think, pivotal and I think probably the core outcome of this COP and also the core expectation of this COP. Um, it wasn't easy. Uh, you know, into the second week of negotiations, usually where you'd like to see some draft text of these policies. There were so many different issues that had not been figured out on all sorts of aspects of negotiations, loss and damage included. And it was about two and a half weeks in that we started to see a little bit of movement with the EU saying, okay, well, maybe we would consider this fund if, you know, based on these different um, aspects. And, and one of those was to, to consider who, one of the challenging things is to think about who is responsible and who should be paying into the fund and who should receive it. Because one of the things that's challenging is that when this a lot of this climate policy came together, countries were divided into either what they call Annex 1 or Annex 2 countries. And it was basically who was developed and who was considered developing countries. But of course, you know, that's changed a lot over 20 years. Um, when you think of countries like China or countries in the Middle East, like Saudi Arabia or Qatar, those are countries that, um, for one, are, are emitting way more emissions into the atmosphere than they did 20 years ago. And for two, um, are, are, are wealthier and better able to deal with some of the impacts of climate change compared to say, you know, some other Somalia or, or um, Pakistan and some of these other countries that are facing severe challenges. So the question now is, should they still be receiving money or should they be giving money? And of course, there's a lot of controversy over how that's determined. So that has not been determined. That has been pushed to, to COP28 to, to consider. But what was finalized is that there will be a fund and there will be some kind of funding for loss and damage that countries who are considered vulnerable can, can apply to and get access to. So this is this is great. This is really what they wanted and what they've been pushing for. We often heard from developed developed countries that oh, there's so many other funding streams and there's other ways to deal with this. But but uh, vulnerable countries were really um, adamant that there needed to be a fund specifically for this. So it was really great to see that. Um, yeah, one of the concerns, I think one of the biggest concerns is that it will just take away from adaptation funding. So mm -hmm. we've already seen some developed countries say they're committing money to loss and damage, but have basically just shifted their funds around from adaptation to calling it loss and damage. And there is certainly a lot of crossover between the two, right? Um, 
you know, whether you're dealing with a major impact, when you build back, you would want to build back in a way that helps you adapt to future challenges and changes, right? So you see some crossover. So it is complicated and there's a lot to be sorted out yet, I think, but we're hoping to see kind of this is now a separate, that countries now need to dedicate separate funding that's new and additional to what they've already committed to this loss and damage fund. And ideally it would be grants, right? Grant-based, not loans. Given that like Canada is already not giving everything it committed to give um, in Paris Agreement, do you feel hopeful that countries will actually commit new money to this fund and like actually fund it well? Yeah, I mean, it's always, it's always a challenge, I guess. Um, I think having the policies in place are a really important step um, because it allows us um, as civil society or other countries to apply pressure, right? To say, you know what, you've committed to this. This is something you said you would do. And now you need to figure out how you're going to deliver on it. Um, and in many cases that pressure can make a difference and we start to see some changes. So even though, for example, Canada isn't living up to its pledge on adaptation, we have seen that it is consciously trying to improve that um, because it's got that pressure and it knows that it needs to be delivering on that. So I think it is definitely a step in the right direction. Um, there's, as I said, still a lot to be worked out and it, it will, yeah, you know, the proof will be in the pudding, I guess, as we see what the details are and, and how we figure out exactly how this is funded and if it's going to be adequate. I mean, I think we're still really struggling because globally countries are not wanting to reduce fossil fuels and the funding that goes into them. Um, and yet our ne adaptation needs and the needs to address the damages caused by climate change are getting higher and higher. So where is all this funding going to come from, right? Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of conversation about, well, yes, some of it will come from you know, existing funding sources. So whether that be countries' climate finance they deliver, coming from development banks, for example, or debt relief, for example, but some will have to come from innovative sources as well. So new kind of new sources of funding that are still largely in conversation, which could be, say, taxes on fossil fuels and or, or on um, aviation or shipping or those kind of things are all being discussed as to how we actually get the funding needed to address these issues. Because as we know, um, you know, the world is warming and uh, it is very likely that these impacts will just get much worse because we are not really addressing the issues sufficiently. And so how do we then deal with all of the impacts and including food security, right? That this is gonna have around the world. Thanks for joining us on this week's Between the Rows. I'm Christy Nuds, editor of Farmterio. We'll be back again next week, and I hope you'll join us. Save money, make money with AGI Nico dryers. AGI Nico mixed flow screenless dryers provide one to two pounds heavier test weight per bushel and require less maintenance than screen dryers. Stainless steel fuel trains mean no rust or corrosion to worry about. AGI Nico Dryer Manager puts remote management and monitoring in your hands. 
And with 30% in fuel savings, you'll save on every load. That's money in your pocket. Visit aggrowth.com slash Nico for more info. That's aggrowth.com slash Nico.